You know, one of the things that, uh, that we try to do in RUF is not, you know, publicly disagree with other Christian groups. I know there are differences of opinions about lots of different things, but honestly, uh, in the world today, it's even more important that we find unity wherever we can. However, the topic we're looking at tonight, there are some significant differences um, between some groups that I, that I do need to point out. And um, one of them kind of, I'll, I'll just say right off the bat, is the whole idea of whether you can have assurance that you really are a Christian. And you may not know this, many of you have grown up in traditions where, of course, you believe that if you're a Christian, you can be sure that you will remain a Christian. But there are Christian groups, not least the Catholics, who say that assurance of salvation is a Protestant heresy. That was declared in, uh, at the Council of Trent in the 1540s. Um, John Wesley, who thought that if you give Christians assurance, it will make them lazy. So we're going to be talking about a topic tonight on which there are some different opinions. But I wanted to start out with this passage. It's the end of 1 John. Now you may know at the end of John's gospel, he says, I have written these things. Well, first he says, basically Jesus did so many things that not all the books in the world could fill uh, all the things if you wrote down everything that Jesus did. And then he says, but these things I have written so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ. First John, however, the end of first John is a little different. He tells us the purpose there as well at the very end. And I thought I would read that to begin tonight. Uh, this is in chapter five. First uh, John, yes. Um, verse 13, here it is. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So he's writing to Christians that you may know that you have eternal life. So John's gospel is written that you might know Jesus is the Christ. But if you are a Christian, you say, I believe that. First John is written that you might know that you have eternal life. Now, I'm going to bring up other passages as well tonight, but we are going to be talking about if that's true, then how do you explain so many Christians that have doubts that plague them sometimes all of their Christian lives? Um, maybe you've heard me say this before. This is one of my little um, favorite sayings because I think it's so important. If you misname normal, you really mess people up. If you misname normal, if you make people think that what they're experiencing is not normal, but is out of the ordinary, it will make them incredibly introspective to a morbid uh, dimension, I think. And this is one of those issues, that if you tell Christians that doubts are odd, or that doubts mean that you probably aren't a Christian, either direction you go, it really messes people up. It's important that you know, not only that you can know that you have eternal life, but that it was important, for instance, to the Apostle John, that he would help you, which presupposes you need help to know. So when we talk about this issue tonight, doubts and assurance, I want to start out saying doubts are normal in the Christian life. They are normal. 
That doesn't mean that there's nothing we can say about it and just sort of say, well, they're just normal, so deal with it. No, there's a lot we can say about it. But before we do, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and all the many passages we will look at tonight. Thank you for those Christians who went before us and have spoken eloquently and um, helpfully to these issues. And we pray now you'd send your spirit to help us as we ponder uh, these related issues of doubt and assurance in the world we live in today and how then shall we live? We ask that you'd send your spirit to help us in Jesus' name, amen. Um, this book by Os Guinness, very helpful book. Yes, he is related to the people who invented Guinness beer, but that's a whole nother story. Um, Os Guinness, his book, God in the Dark, very helpful. You may remember if you were here for the very first uh, sermon in this series. If you weren't here, but you've cut on with RUF a little later, you can go back and listen to the Belmont RUF podcast. I talked about Isaiah chapter 50, about let him who trusts in the Lord, trust in the Lord in, in, in the dark. The idea that often feeling like a Christian feels like full of doubts and like you're walking in the dark. And, and that that is not an unusual experience for people of faith. Well, that's uh, Oskinis is talking about in his book. And I love this helpful definition. He says, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Nor is it the same as unbelief. Doubt is a state of mind in suspension between faith and unbelief. So that it is neither of them holy, and it is each only partly. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is. Doubt is not always fatal, but it is always serious. And that's why we're talking about it tonight. Doubts are normal for people of faith. That's the first thing that I want to talk about. Lots of examples. Uh, when Mary, since this is almost Christmas now, when Mary is told by the angel that you are going to become pregnant with child, she does not say, wonderful, awesome, I trust you. No, the first thing out of her mouth is, how can this be, I'm still a virgin? Which is a perfectly reasonable question, and the angel does not shame her for it. As a matter of fact, he kind of explains, but doesn't really. He says, the, you know, the power of the Holy One will come over you. Okay, what's that mean? I don't know. And it, then it talks about how she ponders all these things in her, hearts, in her heart. Like, of course she's going to wonder that. I always, I always say, like, Christianity is not divorced from thinking. And if you are thinking you are going to have questions. If, you're not, if you don't have questions, you probably aren't thinking. And if you aren't thinking, then your Christian faith probably has some real problems. Those should never be divorced. Uh, another one, you know, we know about doubting Thomas, right? About the guy who's like, well, I won't believe unless, you know, I see Jesus and I can, you know, see the wounds in his side, right? And what does Jesus do? He has mercy and compassion on him and, and shows up and lets him do that. But I like this as well in Matthew 28. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. That's a great picture of the church. And these are the disciples. 
They worshiped him, and some doubted, in Matthew 28. And of course, the Psalms are full of these sorts of things. Where are you, God? How can I make sense of my life in light of who I know you to be? So the question sometimes is asked, are doubts sinful? I think it's actually not a very helpful question. You know why? Because everything is tinged with sin. This is like when people ask me, well, how do I know if it's God's will or my will? I was like, you can't. Because there's no, there's no way you can separate yourself, nor should you. Like you can have this pure, rarefied spiritual uh, experience where you just totally want God's will with no part of your own desires, selfishness mixed in. It doesn't work that way for people who are living this side of glory. So doubt, like I said, is not the same as unbelief. It's more of a conflict of beliefs than a settled state of unbelief. Now, if you're like, well, I'm really more in a settled state of unbelief, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. We want you to be here. We'd love to talk to you. That's why I every Wednesday meet for two hours at Brew Invites with people that have questions about anything they want. We can start with talking about the stuff we're going to talk about tonight, but you really, the, the door is wide open. And I'd love to talk to you about that kind of stuff. I think it's really helpful for all of us. Um, here's the thing I'd say. Doubt is complex. And, and the factors involve range from the world, the flesh, our own selves, and the devil, to even God himself. I think there's lots of evidence in the Bible that sometimes God withdraws his visible, tangible presence to draw us to a deeper level of trust than merely our feelings. So where might our doubts come from? Um, where might they come from? And, and again, like I said, for many, for many people raised in good Christian churches, they've been made to feel like doubts are unreasonable and um, you know, that there's simple, easy answers to every question. I hope you understand from this series that we've been doing this whole semester that that's not true. And I hope, I do think sometimes dealing with people's doubts simplistically or like they're no big deal is itself another barrier to belief because it doesn't seem to take seriously the condition uh, of what it means to live in this time and this place. Let me explain what I mean. James Davidson Hunter, he's a Christian sociologist professor at UVA, wrote a book, very helpful book, called Change the World. It's actually a book about how naive Christians are in how the world actually changes and some prescriptions for maybe how we could think better and act better about that. Um, but one of the things he says in there is when you live in a time such as ours, in a world where most of the cultural institutions uh, go against the grain of Christian belief, you should expect to be plagued with more doubts than if you lived in Christendom, if you lived in the Middle Ages, where everything around you supported the belief that there was a sovereign God who ruled all things. To live in our world and believe that, you will feel crazy much of the time. And so if you don't expect that, it makes it twice as hard because you feel like I'm the only one particularly when you're like in a crowd of people and they all are like singing songs with their eyes closed and you're like, 
I don't know, I'm not sure if I'm actually feeling that. I've had so many students over the years tell me they've had that very profound experience of being in the middle of a group of people praising God and feeling like looking around and like, I'm just not feeling that and wondering what's wrong with them. Again, one of the reasons why it's important to sing hymns and psalms that speak more honestly about struggle and doubt because it's part of the normal Christian experience and it always has been. But our cultural context does impact this issue. We live in a world in which you should expect to have more doubts because believing in Christianity is going against the grain in so many ways. But I also think one of the contributing factors to a lot of, a lot of people's doubts today are false and naive expectation of what the normal Christian life feels like. A former uh, RUF campus minister of mine who did RUF at UT Austin, sorry, a friend of mine, a guy named Bill Boyd, used to say this, every freshman I meet with at the University of Texas is trying to get back to a mountaintop experience they had in middle school camp. They're all trying to, and they think that that's what it means to be a good Christian and to be fired up for Jesus all the time. And maybe some of you grew up in that kind of world, that kind of culture, where basically every summer you hope that that camp will sort of get you fired up for Jesus again and maybe it'll stick this time. And, and there's always that last night at camp where people are standing up and crying and, and praying and vowing that they're gonna really make it stick this time. It's not gonna be like last year or the year before or the year before, right? Rededicating their rededications over and over and over again. And yet, what if, what if, what we think is the normal, mature Christian experience is not actually what mature Christian experience feels like? Now, John Newton, whose hymn we're going to sing at the end tonight, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow, um, he also wrote Amazing Grace. He wrote Let Us Love and Sing in Wonder. Uh, he wrote so many wonderful hymns. He's regarded as a guy who really understood the gospel. And he also is known not just for writing hymns and for the fight against slavery, which was very significant uh, part that he played in that, but he also wrote letters. He was one of the su supreme Christian letter writers. People would write letters to him with their spiritual questions, and he would write back answers, and we have so many of those letters, and they've been published, and they're really helpful. Um, in, in, one, in a set of three letters, he talks about the three stages of Christian growth. And I want to tell you what he has to say, because it's very helpful. Now, he's writing back in the 1700s, okay? And here's what he says. He says, young Christians basically live upon their frames. That's the word he uses. Um, if you're not used to that, um, that word, we sing it sometimes in that hymn, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand where we sing that line, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. What does that mean? That means even when you really feel that God loves you, don't put your trust in that. Put your trust in Jesus, not in your subjective feelings. And what he says is, new Christians, God often gives them an extra dose of feelings because they don't have anything else. They don't really know the word of God. They haven't really experienced ups and downs and seeing God answer prayer. They don't really have a lot else. And so God sometimes gives them an extra dose of feelings. Uh, but generally, when you begin to grow as a Christian, he would say a growing Christian is marked by one word, conflict. 
One of, one of my favorite Christian writers, a guy named Robert Murray McShane, said that a true Christian is known as much by their warfare as they are by their peace. And yet we think that faith will always feel like peaceful, easy feelings or always feel like being fired up for Jesus. And what Newton says is actually growing as a Christian is usually marked by feeling this conflict. You begin to realize my sin is more rooted in me than I realize. It's not just little things that I screw up. It's like more like an organic network that's like wrapped around every part of me. And I can't seem to be free from it. It just plagues me. And the more I mourn my sin and the more I pray that God would change me, the more I see how far I have to go to be like Jesus. And that's really distressing unless you understand that mature Christians for thousands of years have been saying that's what it feels like to grow. But if we misname what the growing stage of Christianity feels like, people think something's wrong with them. And I see this all the time with college students who God is beginning to say, I think it's time for you to grow up. And they begin to experience conflicts and struggles, and then they think something's really wrong and they wanna get back to that mountaintop experience. He actually said, you know what he said was the state of a mature Christian? Here's how you know a mature Christian. A mature Christian is somebody who's been misled by their heart so many times that whatever their heart tells them to do, they automatically do the opposite. You just ponder that. In our romantic culture, that's like craziness. That's what he said, and I think there's, I can testify to that in my own life. Um, anyway, so I, I think that that's, again, uh, something that is going on with a lot of us that can contribute to these doubts. Um, it also can, can be a problem. I don't know how many Christian books you guys read, but I read, when I was your age, I would read different biographies from famous Christians, and they would always be, you know, what we call hagiography, which is basically like, not talking about any of the hard things in the people's life, but just how great they were and how many people got converted by their witness and all this stuff. But I am grateful. I don't know if anybody read Pilgrim's Progress. Anybody ever read Pilgrim's Progress? You know of it, maybe? Um, it's uh, Next to the Bible is like the best-selling Christian book of all time, right? So it's something you should read sometime, I think. But um, John Bunyan also wrote a little book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And I found this in a used bookstore when I was your age. And I'm so glad I read it. It was basically his kind of spiritual autobiography. And what he said, this is the guy that wrote the second most popular Christian book uh, in the world. He said that right after he became a Christian, he was plunged into like three years where every time he tried to pray, he was filled, his mind just was filled with blasphemous thoughts. Like for three years, he couldn't pray without blasphemous thoughts taking over his mind until he finally found relief. Uh, and, and you can read the book if you want to find out about how. But I just thought, oh, whoa, really? Like, I wouldn't have expected that unless some Christian was honest enough to say it. I remember a mentor of mine saying, you know, like, and this is a guy who's like literally written books on prayer. And he said, when I get up in the morning, I've got to read like a Christian book for 30, 40 minutes to warm up my heart before I can start to pray. And I was like, that's so good for me to hear because I thought you were this super Christian. Thank you for being honest about that. So I, I think that, um, that, that this is another issue. I, I also want to, want to say this, uh, and this jump, I'm jumping down to number four here because there's so much to talk about tonight, and you can go back and read some of the other things I'm going to skip over. But um, some of the doubts that we have, and this ties into our series, some of the doubts we have might actually be healthy skepticism 
about false teaching. Remember, the title of this series is, Tell Me About the God You Don't Believe In. Chances are I don't believe in that God either. That's a line from N.T. Wright, Bishop N.T. Wright. Here, here's what uh, Os Guinness says about this. He says, sometimes when I listen to people who say they have lost their faith, I am far less surprised than they expect. If their view of God is what they say, then it is only surprising that they did not reject it much earlier. So fundamentally false that it would be better for them to doubt than to remain devout. The more devout they are, the uglier their faith will become since it's based on a lie. Doubt in such a case is not only highly understandable, it's even a mark of spiritual and intellectual sensitivity to error, for their picture is not of God, but an idol. And I, I think in some of the cases, people I hear that are talking about deconstructing their faith, some of the stuff that they believed needed to be deconstructed. Okay? So if that's kind of where you're at, let's talk about it. I think this happens a lot in college. People are like, well, I believe this, and now I'm hearing all these other things, and maybe my church back home or my parents have lied to me, and now I don't think I can trust them about anything. Well, let's just talk about it. I think it's, it, part of maturity is being able to have a more nuanced view of some of these things and to begin to examine some of the things. What does the scriptures actually say about some of these things? But some of the beliefs that we have may actually need to be rejected and that might actually be a healthy thing. Another thing I want to talk about, and, and I, don't, I don't want to make this too philosophical, so I actually have a, literally a whole outline on this little thing I'm going to talk about if you want to go deeper into this, because some of you might, and some of you be like, oh my gosh, this is killing me. Um, <laughs> there's a difference between certainty and confidence. Confidence is what you have about people you know. I have confidence that my wife will be faithful to me. But I don't know for sure. I don't have certainty. There's a lot of things that can happen. Right? I have certainty that 2 plus 2 equals 4, at least in sort of, you know, basic math. I'm sure there's math majors here that can explain why that's not true in every sentence. Fine. I went to Berkeley College of Music, so don't confuse me. <laughs> um, but, but, but in the early days of Christianity, there was a man named Augustine, who said this, is one of his most famous statements, faith is unto knowledge. That fundamental to the act of knowing is faith. Faith is always at the root of knowing. Whether it's faith in what a professor told you, faith in what somebody else did as a scientific experiment, and they've reported the results to you, faith in your community, faith in God. And the way we know people is by what they've said, by their actions, by what we hear about them from other people that we know. That's how we know God. But there was a guy named Rene Descartes who really introduced a profound shift in the way people think about these things. Descartes said, no, I think we can actually get to a place of certainty if we doubt everything that's doubtable and we get to bedrock and then we can build up from there. So rather than faith being unto knowledge, he said doubt is the way to get to certainty. And for many, many generations, the church kind of bought into this false hope that you could have certainty. I still hear people talk about 
their faith in this way. Like to, the, the idea that you could read something in the Bible and be wrong about what you believe about it would be like devastating to some people. And I'm like, well, I, I kind of like this line from C.S. Lewis where he says, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun. Not just because I see it, but because I see everything else by it. The longer I'm a Christian, the more some things make sense in the Bible and the way some things, more other things are like, yeah, I don't quite know what to think about that. And honestly, the longer I'm a Christian, the things that make less sense make sense that they make less sense. Like that passage we read for the call to worship, my ways are higher than your ways. So there are some things that I would expect I wouldn't understand. When I was a young Christian, I don't think I knew that, nor did I expect that. But the longer I've been a Christian, the more I'm like, okay, these things I'm really confident of because God has said it over and over and over and over and over again. Like what is the gospel? That Jesus came to die for our sins and we can be saved by putting our hope in him. That's everywhere in the Bible. But what does it mean when Paul tells the Corinthians, that's why some of you were baptized for the dead? Like nobody really knows. The Mormons think they know, they don't. But nobody knows because Paul assumes that the Corinthians know what he's talking about, therefore he doesn't explain it. And we only have one side of the phone conversation to speak, right? So there are some things that you're like, okay, I'm not, I, I'm not quite sure. But the things that matter the most are the clearest and are repeated over and over and over again. This is a fancy word, the perspicuity of scripture. That the basic message of scripture is sufficiently plain and clear for us to be able to be saved. But like Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16, some of the things Paul writes are difficult to understand. So if you have an expectation that you're gonna be able to understand everything in the Bible, or you're really rattled by the idea that Christians disagree with each other about things, don't let that rattle you. The Bible expects you to understand that it's going to be that way until God makes everything clearer to us one day, okay? And you have to live with the truth you have as best you can, but some things are hard to understand, as Peter says. And I love that one apostle says that about another apostle. It always helps me when I read the Bible. I'm like, ah, I don't know quite what this means. Now, it's easy. When you're a professor, you can say, well, some people say this and some people say that. Hard thing about being a preacher is you have to say, well, this is what it says. You know? But there are some of these things. You're like, I don't know. It could be this, could be that. You come to the Q&A, you'll hear that sometimes. I don't want that to rattle you. I want you to understand that's a typical posture of faith. And we should expect it to be a posture of faith if truth is ultimately a story. Leslie Newbegin, who was a, a bishop, uh, Church of England, who went to India as a missionary, came back upon his retirement to England and was convinced the real great mission field was the West that people had really lost Christianity while he was gone trying to spread the gospel uh, to Hindus and Muslims. And he said this, if the place where we look for ultimate truth is a story, and if, as is the case, we're still in the middle of the story, then it follows that we walk by faith and not by sight. If ultimate truth is sought in an idea, a formula, or a set of timeless laws or principles, then we do not have to recognize the possibility that something totally unexpected may happen. But if we find ultimate truth in a story that has not yet been finished, we do not have that kind of certainty. The certainty we have rests on the faithfulness of the one whose story it is. We walk by faith. We walk by faith. 
Here's the last thing I say about that, and then I want to talk about assurance in the time we have left. In Christianity, our hope is not in our competence as the knowing ones. It is in knowing the all-competent one. In other words, we are saved by the object of our faith, not the strength of our faith, and not by knowing everything that there is to know. All right. True Christians can and do struggle with assurance of salvation. Look at Romans 8. Like I told you, the Bible thinks it's important that you would understand if you're a Christian or not. And actually, Romans 8, I think, is one of the best places to see kind of three things that all need to kind of come together for you to have a strong sense of your assurance. Listen to this. You can be a Christian and not be sure you're a Christian. Now, for some of you, that may freak you out because a lot of you have been raised in traditions where unless you know the day and the hour and you can tell a testimony and say, this is when I asked Jesus into my heart, then you feel like you don't have a right to believe you're really a Christian. A lot of people have been raised in those kinds of settings. I know that. Uh, the Bible never does that, actually. The Bible never says that. The Bible, even the Apostle Paul, who had this incredible conversion, doesn't point to that as the reason he knows he's a Christian. And he had pretty remarkable testimony, right? It's not irrelevant, but like I remember one time I had a student who grew up and a youth pastor told him this one time, if you're 99% sure, you're 100% lost. I was like, whoa, what? Like it's basically getting the cart before the horse, saying what saves you is being sure you're saved. Like if you at all have any doubts, you have no right to think you're a Christian. That is not biblical. Again, why would Paul, or why would John write, I've written these things so that you may know you have faith and have eternal life if he wasn't addressing people that were doubting, right? Uh, anyway, so here's, the, here's what you see, here's what you see in, in Romans. What's the basis for believing that you can have eternal life as a Christian? It really starts with verse 1. Look at verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What is that? That is a promise. And, and what it says is, if you have received and responded to that promise, you can be sure. Why? Because the promiser can be depended upon. It's actually a great place in Hebrews chapter 6 the second half of Hebrews chapter 6, where it says, because God wanted to make it abundantly clear to the heirs of salvation of what he had promised, he swore it with an oath. But God doesn't need to swear oaths. Men swear oaths because we're not trustworthy. And we're trying to sort of put the, the fear of God into people so that maybe they'll tell the truth. God doesn't need to do that. God, Hebrews says, there's two unalterable things. God's character and God's word. And if God has promised, he swore with an oath. That's when he says, surely. Whenever you see in the Bible God saying, surely, that's not necessary for God to say that. Because what God says already is surely. Because of his character, because his word is secure. Why does he say surely in making a promise to Abraham? Surely you will be the father of a great nation. Because it's for us, Hebrews says so that we could be sure that what has been promised 
can be depended upon. And that's the first basis for assurance, trust in the promises. The primary basis for assurance is that God promises eternal life to all who flee to Christ. In fact, to come to Christ at all, you must have a sense that he can be trusted. This is what Hebrews also says, that those who would come to Christ must believe that he exists and rewards those who come to him. Get it, rewards, not pays as a wage. Your salvation is not something you earn by coming to him, but you must believe that he is kindly disposed towards sinners who have no right to earn his love except that Jesus has lived and died in their place and says, come unto me all you who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. That is the primary basis. God has promised it. God has promised it. And you see it uh, down at the end of chapter eight. Look down at verse 38, 39. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. I remember one time telling a pastor when I was your age, I think it's theoretically possible to lose your salvation. I thought I was real smart. And he said, really? Let's look at Romans chapter eight. Uh, he goes, so nothing either in all creation or you know, uncreated. So which are you, Kevin? You know, are you uncreated or are you part of the creation? Because it seems that Paul's excluding every possibility of something being able to separate us from the love of God. He really means to drive the point home here. If you have put your hope in the promises of God, they can be relied on. But that's not all he gives us. He also, as this, ver this chapter goes on, look down at verse five through seven, he's talking about this conflict. Remember I told you? A Christian is known as much by their warfare as they are by their peace. So it's not like you just say, well, I trusted the promises and now I have perfect peace. Because what happens when your peace gets rattled? Well, your peace should get rattled because there's still sin powerfully at work in you. And you often feel like I'm not a Christian. And Paul says, that's what you should expect. If you see this conflict, the flesh battling the spirit, that's a good sign. That is actually seeing fruit. Evidence of struggle and evidence of real change is all fruit that something is different. True Christians live differently. They don't live perfectly. That's why Paul has to exhort them to live differently, right? You're no longer slaves, but you've been set free to struggle. As a matter of fact, Paul says here, being led by the Spirit is not like praying and him just sort of like leading you which way to go or what class to sign up for. It's actually living in line with the way the law calls you to live as a Christian. It has nothing to do with guidance, being led by the Spirit here in chapter 8 of Romans. But that's a topic for another, um, another, another day. And then there's the, verse 15 and 16, the third thing the witness of the Spirit with our spirit, by which we cry, Abba, Father. And this isn't, as some Christians say, God enabling us to see evidence of change in our lives. It's, Paul says that the Spirit witnesses with our spirits. In other words, the Holy Spirit is a concurrent witness. We have a witness, we see fruit, we've trusted the promises, but then the Spirit comes and assures us it's a mystical experience Paul is talking about here. Now, let me say this. For a well-grounded assurance, all three of these need to be working well together. If you only have one, you might be a Christian, but you probably will be living with more doubts than you should. 
Um, because you'll always wonder. If you're like, well, you know, when I was six, I went forward at a meeting and I trusted the promises. Great. Have you ever felt like you're a child of God? Have you ever seen any evidence of doing battle against sin in your heart? No, but I know that I'm saved because once saved, always saved, and I, I made that, that, pro that you know, pledge. Yeah, you might be a Christian, but I suspect that you live with a lot of fears about it, and you might not be. What if, uh, what if you just see fruit in your life, but you've never trusted the promises? Well, you may have come to a point where you're like, I really need to turn my life around. And you can do that in some ways by supreme moral effort. You can do that by being scared spitless about what'll happen if you don't change your life, right? There's all kinds of ways that you can manipulate yourself to change your behavior. But if you only have that and you've never trusted the promises and you've never felt like God has assured me that I'm his child, again, you might be a Christian, but you might be misled and you won't have a strong sense of assurance. What about the third one? The third one, the mystical sense. Can you have the mystical sense without the other two? I remember talking to a student years ago who told me, I was asking him, well, you know, tell me about how you became a Christian. He said, well, I was driving my car really fast and I just felt the love of God flood me. And I was like, that's it? Like, that's the story? I mean, you might be a Christian, I guess, I don't know. But, um, and I, I am convinced that he definitely became a Christian eventually. Um, but I was like, that's not a, that's, it's no wonder you have a lot of doubts because you have never read the Bible, trusted the scriptures, you, you don't have any fruit in your life. Um, so the, the, I just wanna say all three of these things are really, really helpful um, and important. And the Bible wants you to, to grow in these things. As a matter of fact, assurance is the power to live the Christian life. Did you know that? This is one of my favorite verses, Hebrews chapter nine, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. So the blood of Christ, the writer Hebrew says, cleanses our consciences from real sin. Like he's not, he's saying like, hey, you Christians who like have done things that deserve death, like the blood of Christ has to cleanse your conscience. And only when that's happened, when you've appropriated the blood of Christ, it's cleanse your conscience. Only then can you serve God. Without assurance, all of your Christian stuff you're doing is often a trying to make yourself believe that God loves you. It doesn't flow out of the rest that comes from knowing that God is your Father and loves you. True Christian obedience flows out of the grace of the gospel. Serving God is impossible with guilt. You end up serving yourself to try to pacify your guilt. And God doesn't want that. Oh, it may make you, this is what, where John Wesley, I think, got it wrong. It may make you get out there and share your faith, but people will know that you're doing it to pacify your own guilt rather than because you love them as God has given you love for them, right? Assurance matters. As a matter of fact, the Puritans had this thing, may sound kind of weird, they would say one of the reasons to really be careful and avoid scandalous sin was it would cloud your sense of the love of God. 
that when you turn away and run into like craziness, you really begin to doubt whether you're a Christian. And then it just kind of spirals. That's when we need to hear afresh the gospel. You know one of the things in RUF that, that, that we like to say a lot is I don't need to know whether you're a Christian or not to know what you need, because it's what I need. You need the gospel. You need to know that Jesus' grace is bigger than your sin. You need to know, as 1 John says, that when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. You need to know that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God if you're his child. And if you're not, why would you not put your hope in him? Why would you not? Why would you not? I'm going to close with this last thing. And, and then you guys are going to come up and we're going to sing this, this hymn. I ask the Lord. I ask the Lord is a hymn that is really about the way sometimes God sees that we're treating him as the divine pharmacist rather than the divine healer. In other words, we think that we get to write the script and tell God what we need, and then he's jo his job is to fill it. That's not how God works. God is the one who diagnoses. Sometimes God makes an incision here or there. Sometimes it hurts, but always out of love and always to draw us to a deeper level of trust. I actually have another little paper that if you want a copy of on reasons why God would desert us, at least make it feel like God deserts us. It's a theme in the Bible that not a lot of people think about, but out of love, sometimes God, like I said, withdraws his presence to drive us to a deeper level of trust. It's, it's a fascinating topic. Anyway, um, this quote, read this later about this William Romaine quote about making a Jesus out of your faith. He basically, there's this guy that writes him who has this real like discouragement and wonders if like he really is a Christian and he says your problem is you've made a Jesus out of your faith and because your faith is not perfect you think Jesus isn't perfect and really like you want to be satisfied with your faith rather than trusting in Jesus and God's not going to let you do that like God is going to strip away your faith if it's an idol and lead you to put your faith in the real Jesus even your weak faith saves, and even your weak faith can bring peace and joy. And God is out to have that be your life. He really wants you to enjoy relationship with him. He's a father. He doesn't give stones to his children when they ask for bread. He's a good father who loves us. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing this last hymn.